I am John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to thank you for joining me here um, on Jazz and Justice Radio in Washington, D.C. That is WPFW and on WBAI in New York City. Uh, look, we are listener-supported radio, so let me um, start the show by, by giving out our pledge line so those of you who listen to the program uh, can make a contribution. If you're listening in New York or anywhere online, perhaps, you can make a donation to WBAI by going to 212-209-2950 or going online to give to, that's G-I-V-E, the number two, WBAI.org and make a contribution of any size for them. If you are listening in Washington, D.C. or online via their website, you can make a call to their pledge line, which is 202-588-9739 or go to their donation page, which is wpfwdc.org slash donate. And make, as I said, make a contribution of any size. You can become a, a one-time donor. You can uh, use your credit card or checking account to be a sustaining member of these stations. Look, when I say we are listener-supported radio, I mean that we are almost exclusively listener-supported radio. So, so we depend on your contributions to, uh, to keep these uh, radio stations on the air, and to keep keep me on the air on these radio stations. All right, I am um, really honored to have uh, have a guest join me this week. My guest is Valerie Lambert. She is the uh, author of uh, Native Agency, Indians in the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And we're going to have a really good discussion, and we may not even have enough time to get to get everything in, uh, in that we'd like to. But let me start by, uh, by having Valerie, uh, again, thank you for joining me, and uh, if you would... Why don't you give a, a little brief in, introduction on on who you are and how you come to write this book? Okay. Uh, well, thank you uh, so much uh, for having me on the program. I'm really excited uh, to be here and excited to discuss uh, the whole plethora of issues involving uh, Indians and the BIA. It, uh, it's a whole set of conversations we need to continue to have, and we need to you know continue to wrestle with some really difficult issues that lay at the heart of this uh, federal Indian relationship. Uh, I am an enrolled citizen of the Choctaw Nation. I am also of documented Chickasaw Nation ancestry. I grew up in Oklahoma, which is a state that following McGirt, uh, and actually even before McGirt, is more than 50% American Indian reservation. And um, I am currently a uh, professor uh, at the at UNC Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, and I worked for a stretch at the Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, in part because I was just so damn curious about what was going on within that uh, agency that loomed so large in my imagination. It was so um, sort of com it's sort of compelling as a, as an institution of evil that, when I got to the steps of the Bureau of Indian Affairs for the very first time in the 1990s, I was actually surprised that it was a real place <laughs> because it was, I just, it was so um, fantastical to be almost unbelievable. 
Uh, so I just had to go in those doors and see what was going on inside there. And then the rest is is history. I mean, it became, um, you know, more and more interesting to me every day. Uh, I enjoyed uh, the community within the uh, BIA, which is now more than 95% American Indian, Alaska Native, people from uh, all different tribes uh, working together, sometimes not working together. You know, we had fights and conflicts, you know, et cetera. Uh, but it was a, it was a, a fascinating place, and so I um, I decided that I wanted to uh, write a book uh, that would address this uh, agency and try to spark these exactly the kind of conversations that you uh, brought me on the program uh, to have uh, with you and with uh, with other people in Indian country. So thank you. Well, and of course, what your book really talks about is the the transformation of an of an agency that for 150 years was not just run by white people, <laughs> but it was, it was an agency that, whose task was really geared towards, um, towards almost eliminating us, you know, not just in terms of land, but in terms of identity and, and, all, and the like. So it is a, it's an agency that, that obviously has a horrendous past to it. In fact, um, you know, I, you can't help but, automatically kind of deferred to uh, Kevin Gover's apology um, speech that he gave at the 175th anniversary of the um, of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And, you know, and that is also known is known as the never again speech. And and he he lists that history. He got he, he kind of goes through it and 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 again, suggests that it will it'll that place will never again be that. Of course, there are those of us who are, have a much more jaded view of even that transformation as native people have, as you say, taken over this agency. And, and while I can't disagree that there's been a positive change in, a, in an agency that was so active in doing everything from stealing our lands to uh, eliminating you know, our, our language and culture and, and, and belief systems. Um, but, but obviously, you know, my issues are always to the extent that, that it comes up short. And you do a great job, as far as I'm concerned, um, throughout the book, talking about both sides of that, of that conversation. Yes, it's been a positive transmission, but. Yes, it's done this, but. And you do that you know, throughout, throughout the book. Um, but, and that's the conversation that I want to have. But uh, I don't know, I mean, why don't you start, start by uh, talking to me about uh, 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 what you heard from Kevin Gover when he, when he you know, on this auspicious occasion, uh, really, I think shocked the world a little bit. As and at that time, he was the assistant uh, secretary uh, of Indian Affairs, um, which again is 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 the head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So, talk to me about about Gover's uh, speech. Wow. Well, that was a a really monumentous um, time at the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, the speech was delivered on September 8th, uh, 2000. It is now uh, really a landmark of uh, American Indian history, um, and not just in the federal tribal relationship, but our history, that that uh, historic apology, the never again uh, speech. Uh, now, he is a uh, tall, lanky uh, Princeton graduate and, you know, sort of nerdy, um, very uh, lovable. Um, he has glasses, he wears a long ponytail, and he's always, always in a business suit. 
Um, and I really, it, I really liked the way that he ran the BIA. He conceptualized the BIA as this fort uh, within this larger settler state battleground. Uh, Indians were on the inside of the fort, you know, in the BIA, and then settlers were surrounding us. Uh, and he walked around, you know, always with uh, fiery, eloquent, and indignant uh, language. Um, so when we uh, sat down uh, to listen to the historic uh, apology, the never again speech, uh, it was uh, business as usual for us. We were used to, you know, him talking uh, in in that way. Um, and he told us, um, as he often did, you know, and I'm going to quote some from from this uh, historic apology, the never again speech. In the past, this institution has committed acts so terrible that they infect, diminish, and destroy the lives of Indian people decades later, generations later. Uh, and then a little bit later, he said, the BIA set to destroy all things Indian. And its legacy is one of racism and inhumanity. And he added that now that the BIA is run by Indians, quote, never again, and there's the never again thing, never again will this agency stand silent when hate and violence are committed against us. Instead, the BIA will be an advocate for Indian people and an instrument of Indian prosperity. Uh, so this was, uh, you know, just, uh, and, he, and he said, I'm, I'm trying to disclose what the hearts and minds of the Indian people at the BIA, how we feel about working for such a heinous institution. And uh, I mean, it really, the history is, the more you dig into the history of the BIA, that first 150 years, uh, the more stomach turning it is. It's just nauseating. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned elimination. That was a big uh, aspect of the BIA. It was uh, hatched in the Department of, the, of War by Indian hater John Calhoun, uh, who called us a savage people. And it was really designed from the get-go to eliminate us, first by outright killing us. Uh, I would, you know, we're well aware, I think a lot of us, uh, about the Wounded, e wounded Knee Massacre by the uh, U.S. government in 1890. Uh, but uh, fewer of us are aware of just the incredibly long list of actual killings, I mean, massacres of our people by uh, the U.S. government. Um, you know, and so going through that, which we at the BIA did in trying to come to terms with this history, it's the Hillaby Massacre of 1813, uh, the Sacramento River Massacre, Klamath Lake Massacre, Bloody Island Massacre, Harney Massacre, Fort, Fort Fauntleroy Massacre, Bear River Massacre, um, the uh, Marias Massacre. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So the the act the the literal elimination of us uh, was a huge part of how the BIA came to be. And then later, the elimination became, I guess, a little bit more <laughs> subtle. Uh, so, you know, trying to uh, starve us, for example, by denying us rations, uh, by suppressing our languages, you know, the, the cultural death uh, or attempted uh, cultural killing was huge, outlawing Indian ceremonies, um, taking our lands, I mean, that was a huge part of it. So they ended up taking 97.5% of our lands um, and just containing, co controlling, and managing us. I mean, that we have every reason to hate the BIA and to run away from it completely, to burn it down, in fact. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's where we're at. 
the BIA, no question about it, was a powerful and effective tool of white domination and native subjugation and elimination. And uh, so, you know, the sort of the what do we do with that uh, as Indian people uh, after that first 150 years? And so that's what I wanted to write about. While at the same time, I have a whole chapter on, <laughs> on what the B why the BIA is so heinous. And we all know that. I mean, we all have stories that we tell on our reservations about all the harm that the BIA has done to us uh, historically, has done to you know, us today, I mean, that harm continues. Uh, it's just not as uh, as terrible as it was uh, during that first 150 years. Yeah, and 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 again, I think you do a, a good job um, uh, discussing much of that. And, and of course, let's not leave out the deaths caused by forced migration and removals. Um, uh, and, and of course, 150 years, when actually, it's actually two, almost 200 years of residential schools if you break it down to the Civilization Fund Act um, to the fact that I think there's still there's still a handful of, of boarding schools that are run by the Bureau of Indian Affairs today. And while they may not be torturing children uh, and, um, and doing the, the forced assimilation, I would argue that you cannot live in this American society as a native person and not still be experiencing a fairly high level of indoctrination uh, and assimilation in any public school, certainly in the, the private institutions of, of the media, uh, as well as governmental policy. And, and I think this is one of the areas that, that I still remain very critical of in terms of the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Now, you do a, a lot of conversation in the book about the trust responsibility and, uh, and how that shifted. One of the things that, that I bring up on a fairly regular basis on my show is, is trying to make people understand that when we say trust in terms of this trust responsibility, it isn't trust as a virtue. It is trust <laughs> as in this notion of trusteeship that somehow they are our custodians, that, that, we are, that they are our guardians of some sort. And that is still something in terms of that relationship between, uh, between Native people and the federal government that the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and, and I, I know you, you specifically raised that question of, um, of managing the relationship. And at the same time, you, you refer often to us as the clients of the, uh, of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And those two things are oftentimes <laughs> in very much in conflict. So... I, I get. I guess this is part of that whole that that uh, that that conversation about the Bureau of Indian Affairs. When we talk about trust responsibility, are we all on the same page that that at some point point the the word trust has to has to fall back on trust as a virtue rather than this custodial relationship that the federal government seems to uh, still maintain over many Native people and many, many Native lands. Wow, well, that's a really, really good question. And the trust responsibility is at the heart of the commitment uh, that Indian people who work for the BIA um, undertake uh, when they decide to work for the BIA. And many tens of thousands of our people have gone to work for the BIA. That was one thing that I was puzzled by. I was interested by why. You know, and what are we doing there? Are we, you know, stooges? Are we, um, are we sellouts? You know, what's happening there? 
But back to the the trust responsibility, uh, I completely agree with you. There's something so uh, egregious and um, problematic about that actual word because it does connote a kind of positive federal Indian relationship uh, that has never existed. And I don't think it will ever, uh, ever be a warm, friendly, quote unquote, trusting relationship. And I don't think we should aspire to that. Uh, we've been betrayed too many times uh, to then say, oh, well, let's trust the federal government. No, I think that's inadvisable. It's unwise. It's not shrewd for us ever to trust uh, the federal government. Nevertheless, that concept of the trust responsibility, uh, which um, was really manipulated by uh, Chief Justice John Marshall in the 1830s to be an asymmetrical guardian toward relationship that then sort of entrenched this paternalism, the racism, uh, the subjugation of our people. That was not originally what we agreed to with our treaties. Uh, what we did in our treaties was to uh, say, okay, um, I mean, not in all cases, because so much land, most of the land actually was stolen. But when we talk about that, that treaty relationship, uh, ceding land in exchange for a number of things that the U.S. government promised to do, and we need to continue to hold them to those promises, in my opinion, and that is to uh, to make sure that uh, as part of the trust relationship that we are not uh, being invaded on a daily basis as we are today uh, by non-Indian interests, uh, that we are being assaulted. We, I mean, there's so much crime uh, due to the, uh, the lack of uh, full criminal and, and civil jurisdiction on our reservations, which we really need. And the trust responsibility then becomes this powerful tool that Indian people are uh, Sort of, they redefined it in terms of its meanings, so as to hold the U.S. accountable for the promises uh, that it had made in exchange for our land. And so, th so it became something that was not—it uh, was not supposed to be, and should never be paternalistic. Um, if anything, we should be at a status higher than uh, the United States government. Um, if, so if it's going to be asymmetrical, it better be that way rather than uh, the other way around that it's been for, for so long. And, well, uh, so and, and we certainly should be held higher than the, the so-called sovereignty of the individual states, which is also yes. very problematic. And, and to be clear, I mean, you don't have to go very far back in history. I mean, Paul Gozar was had literally suggested that we that we remain wards of the state. I mean, that's something that that I mean, he didn't say it in the back room amongst uh, you know fellow white men. He he made this public statement. So this is wow. still a, um, a a sentiment that is carried by many people in positions of power in the United States, and and the agency, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, is still really. Um, troubled by trying to, uh, you know, trying to, to deal with, with that issue. And, and again, this notion of, of being a ward of the state and, uh, you know, and which kind of goes back to, as you said, this Chief Justice John Marshall with, with his trilogy of, uh, of so-called Cherokee cases, where he essentially codified the doctrine of Christian discovery into U.S. law by suggesting that we were, that our sovereignty was necessarily diminished upon discovery. Just simply because the because white Christian nations came upon came upon us and and that's still something 
And, and I'll tell you, this is where some of my frustration lies. We, we still haven't heard from the Bureau of Indian Affairs um, as far as di directly addressing things like the doctrine of Christian discovery. At least I haven't. We still haven't heard um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs weigh in specifically on the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. There are so many areas that you would think that this agency who should really be representing the, the federal government in terms of that relationship, as you say, has sometimes been, been absent. And, and these, are, these are ongoing problems. You know, almost everything that you talk about in terms of not just dispossession of lands, but this idea of, of, of subjugating us is tied to, you know, to the doctrine of Christian discovery and, and so many of these, these, these things that, that were imposed upon us. And, you know, and, and look, even things like the Citizenship Act of 1924, I know the vast majority of Native people consider themselves U.S. citizens. But that was a declaration made by, the, by, the, by Congress. That wasn't something that we signed up for necessarily. I'm not saying there weren't some Native people who believed that they were citizens, even though they may or may not have been. Um, but it, it kind of addresses the fact that we weren't included in the 14th Amendment. Uh, because we weren't under U.S. jurisdiction, which was one of the one of the criterion of, of that, uh, uh, you know, of, of that amendment. And of course, we could argue that we that even that Citizenship Act still it still didn't accomplish the goal because ten years later, and this is an, an area that you and I are certainly in different uh, uh, different <laughs> opinions of is the um, is the Indian Reorganization Act, and and while you cite many of the positive attributes of that. For those of us, and, and being a Mohawk and being Haudenosaunee uh, among the people who, who rejected the IRA, we saw that as an attempt to, to wipe out traditional governance. And, and that's pretty matter of fact as far as that goes. But it also tried to redefine us once again as, you know, by, by defining Native people as a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States, which is essentially part of that language. It, in one fell swoop, once again tried to say that we were subjugated. And there are many of us still who don't consider ourselves U.S. citizens, that we, we put a higher priority on our distinction as Native peoples, um, whether we, we call ourselves citizens of our respective nations or, or what have you. Um, but this is an area that we still, that we still are challenged by. And... You know, and again, I, I, once again, I don't see the Bureau of Indian Affairs having weighed in even on things like travel documents. We saw the, the battle that the Haudenosaunee has gone through with trying to assert Haudenosaunee passports for their lacrosse players to play in other countries. And, you know, this, it kind of bypasses the, 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 the Interior Department and the Bureau of Indian Affairs and becomes a State Department conversation, which I'm not opposed to. But we don't have that kind of relationship with the State Department that we should have. And we have the, the BIA instead. I know I just dumped a whole bunch of stuff on you all at once. So you did, sorry. you did. And I, I really love hearing uh, your ideas. Uh, the BIA, um, I argue in the book, uh, has committed itself during this era of Indian control of the uh, BIA to the goal of being answerable to our people rather than to uh, the United States. That's a, a really important uh, promise uh, that uh, came really out of the uh, the 1972 takeover of, of the BIA. 
Um, and I, I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, the BIA needs to take a stand to weigh in on these really important uh, points. And I think uh, Brian Newland, who uh, currently runs uh, the BIA, would be very amenable to listening uh, to those perspectives. Uh, so these uh, uh, people who are running the BIA, they uh, launch careers after running the BIA that um, that involve fighting, continuing to fight for Indian people, usually working for for tribes. Uh, so they are, you know, sort of their their um, their cachet comes from actually sort of helping our people, trying to be accountable. So I think these ideas uh, are something that. Uh, you know, that I, I myself would be really happy to bring to Brian Newland and others. And I think you're right. I think uh, Indian people need to demand uh, that the BIA take these stands. I think that's important. I want to touch briefly on uh, some of those pieces of legislation. You are right that those pieces of legislation, the intent is not something that we Indians can afford uh, to uh, to. Uh, to agree with at all. I mean, in fact, we vigorously disagree with the intent. Indian Citizenship Act of 1924, excellent example of that. The intent uh, was to persuade us through that legislation to give up our tribal citizenship and to then uh, invest it in the United States. So it was an either or deal. Uh, they did not conceptualize uh, the <laughs> that Indian Citizenship Act as something uh, that it is today, where you know most of us, but not all of us. And I like how you brought that up. Uh, those of us who refuse to become U.S. citizens, um, to the extent that that's even possible in this country, uh, but resistance on that way. Uh, just the whole idea of dual citizenship, uh, U.S. citizenship and tribal citizenship, was not something that was envisioned at all by those who were who were writing the Indian Citizenship well, Act. And, and it still uh, and, it cut, and it really still isn't. I mean, that is still right. a, a question mark that the that the Bureau of Indian Affairs and certainly nobody in the federal government. I mean, I don't care if we're talking about the the, the more local congressman that I have to have a. 20 minute debate on whether I'm part of his constituency or not, or whether right. we, you know, so we, you know, I think it's fine to, to welcome us in as citizens of the United States, but, but to impose it is still a whole other thing. And, and we can't really have a conversation about dual citizenship if our citizenship as native peoples is still not really recognized. That's not dual citizenship. That's, you know, that's like us pretending that that exists while, the you know the dominant culture doesn't. I think that's an excellent uh, excellent point, and there are, you know there are huge problems and issues with that, uh, which I'm really glad you brought up because I did not address that in the book. Uh, briefly about the IRA, the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934. You're right; uh, there were some big problems. And Rania Ramirez, uh, who's a Winnebago anthropologist, wrote a book about how her grandfather Henry Rowcloud was quite critical of the IRA as he was writing it. Uh, one of the things that uh, we latched onto very much uh, with the IRA is that John Collier. Uh, put a moratorium on the continued theft of our tribal lands. So at the end of that period, as a result of the General Allotment Act of uh, 1887, we had uh, lost 90 million additional acres, you know, after the treaty period, you know, et cetera. So it was, we were hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging land, you know, it was being sort of, 
it was like a, a, a you know an uncontrolled theft. So I think the the really powerful part of the IRA, and I wouldn't be one to sit up and defend it, but I think you're right. I, I write about it as a, a tool of Indian empowerment, which in many ways it was, but really on that issue of land, enabling us to, um, you know, legally prohibits uh, continued alienation of our, our tribal lands, which of course doesn't last long, but the promise was there, and our there's nothing more valuable to us uh, possibly than our our land. I mean that that's it. Um, so you know we would do anything uh, for for our land. Um, well, so and most most of us are defined by that. I mean, uh, I say that yeah. I'm Mohawk, but I'm really Gunyagahaga is our word, which means the people of the land of Flint. So in almost all of our languages the words that we call ourselves are usually connected to the land that we're either from if, if we hadn't been dispossessed or the lands that uh or that we're we're on so there, there's no question about that now the other thing that the ira did was um it began the process of um fee to trust as i understand it and and while that is by most accounts a good thing it's still it doesn't really recognize our land title. I mean, it is still land that is held by the federal government for our use and enjoyment, which is still problematic. Now, I live on the, the Seneca Nation territory of Cattaraugus. And as you may or may not know, the lands here in, quote unquote, New York are not held in trust. We actually hold mm -hmm. our land in what is considered restricted fee. And that restriction really meaning that only the federal government can uh, can acquire our lands that nobody else can. But it's it's essentially we own the the land outright. It's 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 fee status title that we hold. It's not a a state deed. It's not a federal deed. It's it's our lands, and and that's not the case every everywhere else. And while there is really only one national um, program or policy uh, or process for Native people to reacquire lost lands, um, it, it, it does in many ways fall short. And well, I'll give you, your, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. And then I want to talk about a little bit how even 1934 leaves a question about our status in terms of citizenship and, um, and whether we are subordinate to the laws of the United States, because that's what we saw in all of the Salazar case um, and all the challenges about native territories, not only trying to be, or native peoples trying to become recognized, but also trying to reacquire lost lands. You know, they're, they're, the language says that if you weren't subordinate or you know, under the, um, uh, the jurisdiction of the United States in 1934, then you, you cannot participate in the fee to trust process. Well, it seems like for the, all of the languages associated with both the um, the Indian Citizenship Act and the Reorganization Act, they are still forced to recognize that many of us don't consider ourselves under the jurisdiction of the United States yet today. Yes, yes. Oh gosh, you you've opened a, a whole can of worms uh, yet again. I mean, this is really you know one of the most interesting conversations I've had about uh, about these uh, set of topics. Uh, so I really appreciate that. Uh, trust land is not um, ideal. Um, you know, basically, you know, what we're working with, what we're up against um, is a whole set of less than ideal options. Uh, so I sounds think like, sounds like a U.S. Sounds like a U.S. election. <laughs> <laughs> 
absolutely right. Uh, so I think with the um, with the General Allotment Act of 1887, the Curtis Act of uh, 1898, which was an amendment to the General Allotment Act of uh, uh, 1887, uh, the U.S. government, as you know, was trying to privatize our lands. And then, you know, with that privatization, then to further alienate uh, our lands, to, to uh, rob us of our lands. Uh, so the whole sort of scaffolding of um, restoring lands uh, to, to trust, and it is really interesting, this, uh, this alternative that, uh, of restricted uh, fee land, uh, where the title is not held by the U.S. government, right? It's not trust land. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. Yes. That, uh, that is something that I see as uh, infinitely preferable to our current uh, trust land um, status. Uh, what is attractive about trust land today is that, you know, it does provide legal protections against the alienation of our land. So if it is in trust, you know, only Congress has uh, the power to uh, to uh, take it from us, uh, which is no small consolation, really. Uh, but it is harder to alienate, a lot harder to alienate. Um and then it bars uh, tri all non-tribal interests from exercising regulatory uh, control over our land. Uh, it enhances our opportunities for tribal economic development. Uh, the, the increases our uh, protections for uh, hunting and uh, agriculture as well. So there are a lot of benefits uh, to the trust responsibility in terms of uh, protecting and securing uh, our rights uh, to our land. Uh, but it is not perfect. You're absolutely right. And I think it would be, we'd be good to have uh, that uh, Mohawk al alternative uh, because a lot of us are trying to figure out ways to uh, move forward um, with respect to protecting our land legally. Well, um, and, it's, know, and it's not just a Mohawk issue. I live here in Seneca territory. And, and in fact, in 1990, there was a, uh, um, a dispute that was settled between the, the Senecas and the city of Salamanca, which is a, uh, a, a municipality, a non-native municipality that exists within the boundaries of the Allegheny Reservation of the Seneca Nation. And they settled that through an act of Congress called the Salamanca Lease Settlement Act. And they put a provision, one paragraph long, at the end of that settlement act that allows the Senecas to use monies that they were awarded in this, this settlement um, to reacquire lost lands and to reacquire them bypassing the feed-of-trust system. And they mm -hmm. can actually reacquire this land and, and take it back within their jurisdiction basically in a 30-day process. And, and it has worked, although it, it can be a little sketchy sometimes. Um, I would say all three of the sites that the Seneca Nation has uh, Class 3 gaming on was acquired land, um, utilized, uh, utilizing this, um, this Salamanca Lease Settlement Act, the Land Acquisition Clause. So there is a model out there, and, and it was passed as an act of Congress. And, um, you know, and, and I have to say that I've got to, in many ways, put the shame on Ruth Bader Ginsburg as she made rulings regarding the Oneidas reacquiring lost land when she basically upheld the the doctrine of impossibility, which I don't know if you're familiar with that one or not, but that suggests that it's somehow impossible for Native people to reacquire uh, or reassert jurisdiction mm -hmm. on lands that they once lost or that they had lost, regardless of how they were lost. She said that 
ruling in Oneida, in the Oneida versus the city of Cheryl, she also, I might add, cited the doctrine of Christian discovery in her footnotes as a part of her justification for that. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Jewish woman on the Supreme Court. Yeah, she, so she cites the doctrine of Christian discovery. But she ignored the fact that this case, which was in 2005, was already six years or five years after, or 15 years after, I'm sorry, um, after there was a specific act of Congress that said, no, there is, a, there is a process for reacquiring lost land and asserting jurisdiction on lands that was not, that, that jurisdiction was, uh, was you know, given up for a period of time. So, yeah, there, there is an example of that. And, you know, and, and I think the Senecas, you know, were unique to having this constructed in an act of Congress. But, but I mentioned it just in passing, just in case you weren't familiar with it. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that. And we need all the ideas we can get, you know, the ways that, you know, we Indian people have managed to game the system, so to speak, um, because we've been in the, on the short end of the stick uh, for so long. And I think sort of the, um, uh, oh, and then with the fee to trust, trust uh, system as it exists today has the, you know, terrible provision that non-Indians can actually weigh in and make arguments as to whether or not uh, that uh, land uh, can be uh, transferred from private ownership uh, to tribal ownership. Why are non-Indians weighing in on that? Why do they even have a chance uh, to make those kinds of arguments and to try to uh, impede that process of uh, helping even, we're just partially restoring our land base and it is uh, so much uh, diminished. But I think, you know, sort of the bigger issue, John, that I think we're talking about um, and, you know, sort of I'd be curious what you what you think of this. It's like, what do we Indian people do now that we are so deep into a colonized period? What do we do? Do we work within the system or do we work without the system? You know, and what are the outside the system and what are the advantages and disadvantages of doing that? Because uh, that sort of brings sort of the, the Mohawks and other Haudenosaunee people to the fore, uh, because more often uh, than uh, than other Indians uh, or Native people, um, Mohawks have and, and Haudenosaunee have chosen more to work with outside the system. Uh, this book is really about you know what we can do in working inside the system. So let me hear what you have to have to say about that uh, that set of choices that we're faced with, and all again uh, options that are not ideal for us. Geez, I just got the tables turned on me. <laughs> no, you know, look, I know there's a lot of conversation about decolonization and what does that really mean? So for me, I look at that, that decolonization should be uh, the process that we go through to unravel and untangle ourselves from the systems of oppression. Now, there's no denying that the United States exists. We can't talk about being aware of our environment, if we're going to pretend that white people aren't a part of it <laughs> or non-native people, there's no question that that where what the world is. But I think the idea of trying to strip away those systems of oppression, uh, and we're going to talk about ICWA and and that challenge. But but even ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, did not place us as the primary uh, authority on the removal and re and placement of our children. It's still relies on the state systems to do that. You talked about jurisdictional issues as it, as it relates to crime and, and, and even civil issues, that we are still being forced to use the outside system that still doesn't quite recognize us as, as for who we believe we are. So I believe that we need to unravel ourselves 
from those and untangle ourselves from much of those systems of oppression. But at the same time, I know we have to interact with, uh, with the state governments and with federal governments. And I think the way that we should have to do that should not necessarily mean that we have to run for office to do it or that we necessarily have to get a job with the Interior Department to do that or the, or the Bureau of Indian Affairs. I'm not condemning that, but I think even an employee of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, they're employed by the federal government. They're, you know, they, many of them serve at the pleasure of the President of the United States, including Deb Haaland. So they are not necessarily our voice. They should be the platform to hear our voices and, and not to make, they shouldn't be making their own assumptions about what our needs are. They should be hearing us. And, and unfortunately, you know, we, um, we talk about tribal leadership or leadership within Indian country and where they sit with this stuff. And oftentimes that can be problematic. You, you, you mentioned, you know, uh, what, was your, what was your line about um, um, sellouts and stooges? Um, <laughs> that, that, uh, what did you, you say? It flattens our, uh, and oversimplifies the, um, you know, the, the, the personal histories. Well, we know that there are plenty of sellouts. I mean, you, you, you mentioned the book, you know, Governor Stitt from, from Oklahoma. But right. you also mentioned the Curtis Act several times throughout the book. And I think it's got to be noted that, that Charles Curtis was, was Native. And he did more to harm Native people than perhaps any other elected official in, uh, in the history of the United States. I mean, I, I think that's, you know, that might be debatable, but I think it's, it's, an, it's an honest debate to have. And he not only served as a congressman and a senator, but he was the vice president of the United States. And so he did that harm. We know that the Trail of Tears was initiated by, by some very treacherous you know, Cherokees, the Ridges, who, uh, who sold out the, the, the Cherokee people and would be responsible for thousands of lives being lost in, that, in their specific Trail of Tears. But I, I think this is, this is part of the history. And, you know, and when, you know, when Kevin Gover says, never again, we still have to acknowledge that the Cobell suit, which was this class action suit against the Interior Department, would be settled for pennies on the dollar during the Obama administration. George Bush's administration had already cited that it was more likely a $40 billion settlement that was required than a $4 billion settlement. We, we've seen, you know, time and time again, even, even with Native people, you, you talked about Native people creating careers. You know, Kevin Washburn, who I, I, I think the world of Kevin Washburn. I mean, he was not only a former assistant secretary, but he, he actually was, was um, put on a tribunal for the Senecas to, to talk about the gaming conflict they were having with the, um, with the state of New York. Two white guys and, and, and Kevin Washburn. And guess how the vote went? Two to one against the Senecas to, to pay the, the state of New York which a, a number that has now reached over $2 billion from gaming. Seneca's still are you know, a very marginalized people, many of them living below the poverty line, while the state of New York takes $2 billion out of their, out of their gaming revenue. And this is something that the Interior Department has been slow to respond to, and not only now, as you, as you note in the book, is talking about rule changes, but they had some authority all along in this that they could have asserted. And maybe that's a conversation we could have as well. 
No, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, there are, yeah, and you know, there are those of our people who advance in the settler state in part because, uh, and Curtis is just the consummate example of that, in part because he was willing to carry out the goals and objectives of the settler state. Uh, he truly believed that privatizing uh, land uh, was uh, the future of the United States, whereas most of us want our land still to be tribally owned. Um, and you're right, you know, in the title held by us, not by by the U.S. government. Well, even uh, even Barack Obama, I think, was making overtures about about how valuable the Homestead Act was uh, during his administration. And and I'll, I got to tell you, this, you know, when I when I hear, you know, the, you know, the people who will go down in history in the United States as being, you know, the, these these great men, Abraham Lincoln, he not only signs the Homestead Act into law, but in doing so causes much of the conflict that would result in him signing the execution order for, you know, for those uh, those Lakota and Dakota at, in Mankato, Minnesota. And, you know, literally a week before he goes and takes mm -hmm. the stage for his Emancipation Proclamation, the day after Christmas in 1862, you know, 38 Dakota are hung by the neck, you know, on, mm -hmm. on Lincoln's orders. And this is part of the history that it's, it's not only not known, but again, I would feel much better about the Interior Department if they made a stronger acknowledgement of some of these things. Look, I, I, I think Kevin Gover's apology res, uh, you know, speech was, was one of the more powerful things that I, that I ever heard come out of the Interior Department. But there's more to talk about. There, there's more to, to address than, than even the stuff that he listed. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think um, sort of the scope is um, sort of at issue here. So the people who work, uh, the Indians who work in the Bureau of Indian Affairs are looking for incremental change. Uh, just baby steps, really. And um, so, for example, uh, when I was at the BIA, Orrin Martin uh, was arguing uh, before uh, the Senate Select Committee on Indian Affairs that U.S. states have been using tribal state compacts as they continue to do today as a tool to gouge gaming revenues from tribes. And she was very hard hitting about the origins of that in Seminole Tribe of, of Florida uh, where there had been a, uh, a provision in IGRA that, uh, that had provided us tribes with some limited but significant leverage in our compact negotiations with states. So decrying that, uh, try, writing a bill, helping propose that, ha having uh, you know, presented it, and it goes through Congress, and of course, you know, they kill it. Um, so baby steps and sometimes no progress at all being made through these uh, initiatives. And I think, um, you know, what is what, what strikes me as really needed is you know, what you're saying, you know, a, a really strong, bold uh, general statement about uh, about what we encounter and how wrong it is and how these injustices need to be rectified. Uh, so I feel like the uh, BIA uh, people are working, you know, Kevin Washburn, he streamlined the process for fee to trust. He, uh, he, uh, Brian Newland doubled the amount of uh, parcels uh, that were being placed in trust. So, I mean, they're trying and trying very hard and they are making progress, but it's really not uh, the pace uh, that we really need. They recognize that. Uh, they're also pretty cynical that, uh, you know, what they do is not going to be our salvation and liberation. There's a whole lot more that needs to happen. 
Uh, so that's what they're committed to is that really sort of uh, that, you know, the yard work, like the little pruning, you know, and trying to encourage uh, the growth of something uh, that will help us. And I did want to get back to one point you brought uh, brought up that I thought was really terrific about uh, the the critical need for grassroots folks on our reservation uh, to have their voice uh, heard at the highest levels of the uh, of the U.S. government. Uh, how to make that happen? You know how to you know create those channels of communication. Uh, super important and really difficult. And um, you know just a whole whole set of. Uh, uh, questions and issues uh, involved there, but that is, too is something that is very, very much needed. Uh, the uh, Assistant Secretaries of Indian Affairs, they do go around to the reservations. Ada Deer uh, spent in their first, you know, stretch as ASIA, uh, had 250 meetings in Indian country, really trying very hard to hear the voices of the people. And you're right that the tribal government voices are not the same as the voices of the people. Yeah, we, you know, we, we, have, we have gate, gatekeepers as well. I mean, Standing Rock is a perfect <laughs> example. You've got Dave Archambault and his sister, Jody Gillette, working for the Obama administration um, that, you know, end up being the face of that conversation when there's 10,000 people camping on lands trying to stop a pipeline. And, you know, and, and Dave Archambault believed that all of the processes that were already in place were going to prevent this pipeline from going through. And boy, was he, was he mistaken. But, right. you know, so this is, this is and, and, that's, and this goes to this side of being what I would ever call a sellout, but, but people who are, can sometimes be delusional about those protections that we think are in place. You know, I, and, and I do have to talk about gaming, at least just for a moment here before um, I, I do oh, want to. Oh, please do. <laughs> I mean, the gaming law that was passed, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, it was crafted out of thin air. We didn't ask for it. I mean, this was a knee-jerk reaction by Congress because of the Cabazon case in California, where the Supreme Court ruled, mm -hmm. yeah, states, if you're doing gaming, Native people could do gaming which even that put, presents a limitation. Then they craft this law that puts the states in bed with us on what may be, again, financially, one of the most transformative um, industries that we entered into. And we all of a sudden did not have this industry that we controlled. It was being oftentimes controlled more by the state and the federal government than, than by our own people. And you know, when I lock, talk about $2 billion being siphoned from Seneca Gaming you know, by the state of New York, including Democrats, I might, might add, Cuomo and, and the current governor, Kathy Hochul. Um, this is something that we, you know, this, I'm, this is a real, real problem. And, you know, this is the, the Interior Department specifically was the, the federal agency placed in, put in place to oversee that, that, that law was followed. And it's not about, there seems, still seems to be more of an emphasis on whether we're following the law than whether the states are following the law. And, and that's very problematic. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and so, you know, gaming, you know, right now it has evolved into something. And you're right about IGRA. You know, that is an infringement on our sovereignty. We should have, you know, full and complete control over gaming uh, on, on our homelands and, frankly, you know, off our homelands well, as well. And both, and both Deb Hallen and uh, Ryan Newland 
are familiar with this topic. So they yeah. are, they are not, you know, this isn't something they're they're being bowled over by out of the dark here. They were both involved in in uh in their nation's gaming. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh the problem that I saw uh Indians fighting, you know, with over uh with the US government, the rest of the US government over gaming was about the state encroachment, you know, which is at the heart of IGRA, you know, these these tribal state uh, compacts and just how states are now uh, recovering just a windfall uh, from our, they're taking the profits of our casinos, you know, as you you point out. So trying to fight that, trying to protect tribes against that encroachment, but that's just one area uh, where uh, we are experiencing just all these attacks on us and our sovereignty. So as I point out in the, in the book, uh, state governments are bilking billions of dollars uh, from tax schemes that raid reservation resources and economies. They exploit and lead to our further uh, impoverishment. Uh, so during like one example, a nine-year period uh, in the 2010s, North Dakota collected $1 billion from just one type of taxation, and that's severance on uh, of the natural resource of oil from just one of the state's reservations, the Fort Berthold reservation. That's like the tip of the iceberg as to what is happening. You know, in taxation, states taxing us uh, on uh, purchases we make uh, on the internet that are shipped to uh, our uh, reservation homes um, and uh, bilking us, you know, just of all of this money, even though we are, we are the high, we have the highest poverty rate of any population in the United States. We are five percentage points higher with our poverty rate than our African Americans who have the second highest. Uh, and, and you, and you can't rate. pretend that that's not policy driven, you know, and that's and that's the thing. Uh, look, we're, we're short on time, so I got to address ICWA. This um, this Indian Child Welfare Act Welfare Act challenge. Um, not only is trying to assert a state's rights over federal guardrails put in front of uh, putting put around them over placement of native children, but the argument is that that we are merely a race. I heard the lawyer for the Brackeens basically said these people are being denied this this right to adopt these children simply because of the color of their skin. Now, we're, I mean, doesn't this represent a a, a rather dramatic? Um, problem for for not only the, the the very existence of the interior department but the fact that it's so predominantly staffed by native people if if somebody wants to challenge some sort of racial discrimination um you know by giving a racial preference to to not only their existing to the agency existing at all but to being staffed by native people i mean have you even looked at at this issue in the broader scope I'm very concerned about this issue. This is uh, one of uh, the leading attacks on tribal sovereignty today, right now. So I'm really glad that uh, you brought us to this uh, topic. It is just unconscionable that the U.S. would try to racialize us. Uh, we are sovereign nations uh, whose status is as nations with sovereignty. We are not a race, you know, and it's, it's uh, you know, very uh, uh, sort of, transparent what they're doing. You know, if you can racialize us as they're trying to do, you know, with this uh, Brackeen case, then you can justify the seizure of lands, the seizure of other resources, and most importantly, our children. You can take our children uh, if you then completely redo the whole basis of Indian identity. 
so this is huge. We have faced this, though, John, I mean, so many times, as you well know. So the termination period of federal Indian policy in the 1950s, uh, the Congress tried to redefine the basis of Indian identity from sovereignty to something else. It was race was on the table. So, you know, those who were a threat of being terminated, uh, if they looked um, mostly white or looked mostly black uh, in some cases, then uh, that was justification for termination. Uh, culture, if you weren't culturally distinct enough, then that was a basis of, uh, of termination. And then socioeconomic status. If you got too rich, you know, as a tribe, then, you know, that was grounds for you to no longer be classified as an Indian. So, you know, that all those criteria, race, culture, socioeconomic status, they've come at us, you know, during the era of termination. We have fought this and we have won. Uh, we are we survive the whole you know sort of a big message in this book is that is our resilience and our our spirit and our our willingness to to fight in defense of our people and our homelands and uh, we have uh, against all odds triumph you know, we have survived it's really quite remarkable uh, given everything that has been done to us and that's the that's the real take home message of the book is you know all the ways that we go about helping ensure our survival and one of those is fighting the brackeen case which is indeed very troubling well, Valerie, I want to thank you so much for joining me. Unfortunately, like I said, we could talk for another couple of hours, and and hopefully at some point we do, whether we do it on the show or I, I, would, I would just love to pick your brain some more. Again, I want to thank you for joining me. The book is Native Agency, uh, Indians in the Bureau of Indian Affairs. I encourage people to take a look at it. And look, I, I'd love to discuss it further with you. And again, I, I, I can't thank you enough for joining me. Okay, well, thank you, John, and I look forward to our continued conversations. All right. Thank you very much. This is John Kane for Resistance Radio. Yahweh.